Welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast. At Scotts Hill, our mission is to join God in His work of transforming lives. One of the ways we join God is by studying and proclaiming His Word. So each week, our podcast features our Sunday morning sermons where one of our pastors explains, illustrates, and applies the Bible to our lives. We hope that you are challenged and encouraged by the Word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome to Scotts Hill. Those of you who are first time guests here, we're so glad to have you. My name is Phil Ortigo. I serve as a senior pastor, and we're happy that you're here today. Those of you who have invited us into your home, thank you for giving us the opportunity to join you there. And those of you in the Cross Point Center, thank you for joining us each week as we continue. Well, we've just made it through the Thanksgiving season. How many of you had the opportunity to be gone for Thanksgiving weekend? You were gone visiting with family and friends. Most of you stayed right here. I had the opportunity to go with my kids. We went to the Keys this year, and they all met us there. And my little granddaughter, Hadley, absolutely hated my goatee, so it is gone. <laughs> and, uh, and some of you are happy about that as well. And, uh, you know, after you grow a goatee, your face looks long. I shaved it off, and I thought, man, I got fat. So anyway, um, I've got to do something about that. But it was a great trip that we had, um, and, and we're so excited. Now that Thanksgiving's done, we are officially in the Christmas season aren't we? I know some of you started in October, but that doesn't count. We are officially in the Advent series in this season where we're focusing on the celebration of Christ and of Christmas together. And it feels so good. I mean, the weather outside feels perfect for Christmas, doesn't it? Um, and, and I'm wearing some Christmas attire. Somebody asked me, did my wife dress me? I said, yes. Somebody asked me, are you wearing your wife's shirt? So I... <laughs> You know, I don't care. My wife picks out my clothes and I wear what she tells me to wear. But um, otherwise, I am happy about this time of the year. I love Christmas. How many of you love Christmas? Love Christmas season. I just love it. I, I, I love the music of Christmas. Even though we only sing it a couple once, you know, a month through the course of the year, I always look forward to the Christmas music. There's something about the Christmas music. And of course, I love the Christmas decor. You see all around us, we're decorated. We're ready for Christmas. Your homes are decorated. You drive down the streets, everything's set up, especially these little towns that you go through. You notice how they really put Christmas everywhere? Well, I love all the decor. I love the lights. I love the food of Christmas. Anybody like the food? And, um, and I'm one of those rare people who like fruitcakes. Anybody else rare in this um, with, who have perfect taste buds and things like that? The wonderful thing about um, 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 fruitcake there's no expiration date on them. They don't even know what they're made of. So you can keep them all year. But, but the other thing I love are, are the movies of Christmas. Uh, and, I, you know, it's really crazy. I don't know why, but you watch the same movies every Christmas. It's like you've seen them a thousand times, but there's something nostalgic about all of the movies. Every year, I try to show something of what our culture is focusing on during the Christmas. Sometimes I'll pick out the top presents that people are looking for, the top food that people are looking for, the top things that they like to do. But this year, I've looked at the top movies that people like during the Christmas season. And I looked at a numerous list, and the list always end up with some of the same ones on there. They, they move around a little bit in there, but I've got eight movies that have shown up on almost every top 10 list. And these are the movies that people look forward to at Christmas time. The first one is Christmas Vacation. I don't know if some of you are fans of this, you know. Uh, um, um, I think I've seen it one time, and that was enough for me. Um, but some people love Christmas Vacation. That's number eight. Number seven is Home Alone. 
People love to watch this movie. I mean, I watched it once as well. It's a different take when you're a child watching this and an adult watching this. So two different things. Third, who, who, how about Rudolph? Remember the claymation Rudolph? You're aging yourself now. Be careful. But we remember this. I used to love this coming up. And the original Grinch that stole Christmas. Um, you remember that growing up as kids, many of you, every, it was always coming on television and you couldn't wait for it to come on. Or how about this one, our Charlie Brown Christmas. Many of you remember that. Again, you're aging yourself because you remember when the TV only had three channels when you watched this one. Elf, the only Will Ferrell movie I have ever watched all the way through and probably will be the only one I ever watch all the way through. Sorry, Ricky Bobby, but um, this is... This is Elf, and um, people love this one. My all-time favorite, A Christmas Story. Is there anybody here who has not seen this movie? You have not seen this movie. Don't be shy. Go ahead. Raise your hand. You need to watch this movie. They don't make movies like this anymore. The narration in this movie is superb. I mean, it's incredible. The wordsmithing of it, I love this movie. And, and, and it's just an incredible time, time that remembers, brings me back to that. And of course, the last one is It's a Wonderful Life. Most people love It's a Wonderful Life. You can now watch it in color, okay? And it's been around so long and Clarence gets his wings every single year. And so there are many, many other stories around Christmas. And people love the issue of stories around Christmas, whether it's family stories, whether it's stories of culture. But Christmas is about one story. Of all the stories that are, are generated during Christmas time, there's one story that's important. And that's the story of God's incredible love for us that he would send his only son in the flesh, that he would live a perfect life, that he would teach us of the Father, he would heal us, he would love us, he would die for us, he would be buried for us, he would raise from the dead for us, and he would de deliver us from our sins. The story of Christmas is about Jesus. And it's always been about Jesus. The little cliche that people say he's the reason for the season is the truth year after year after year after year. We're celebrating Advent. And as uh, Garrett said earlier, Advent comes from a Latin word which simply means coming. But for us as a body of Christ, we're not just celebrating the coming of Jesus because he has come. We are celebrating the fact that he has come but we're also anticipating the reality that he is coming again. And we're looking not only to the first advent of his coming, but we're looking to the second advent of his return. And when you look at the pages of scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, there's one storyline through the entire Bible. And the whole storyline is the reality that the king is coming and the king is coming again. If, if I could draw you a storyline, if I could draw you a timeline, a very simplistic one of all the events of scripture from Genesis to Revelation, it would look something like this. And, and this is not original with me. It's been around for a long time, but creation. We all know everything started at creation. God spoke and everything came into being. And with every subsequent word that God spoke, another act of creation took place. And at every time, God said, it is good. And on the sixth day of his creation, he created a man. And then he created a woman. 
And he created them as husband and wife, put them in a perfect garden, a perfect relationship with God, gave them one prohibition. And what happened? They failed. They disobeyed God. And the second event that we find is the fall. And what happens then? Adam and Eve sin against a holy God. They create high treason, and they're separated from him. They receive curses, and as a result, they're thrown out of the garden. And from Genesis chapter 4 all the way to Genesis chapter 11, the picture is the brokenness and the fallenness of humanity, the absolute depravity of humanity between those chapters. Then you get to chapter 12, of Genesis, and you find a very important thing, the introduction of Abraham. And God creates a covenant with a man who was a pagan, who was living in a foreign country, who was worshiping pagan gods, and God reveals himself to Abraham, pulls him out of all this brokenness, and says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Abraham. And Abraham, from you, you will be the father of many nations. And Abraham, from you, a king is coming. And this king is going to restore everything that was broken and was lost. And he's going to come through your lineage. The only problem is Abraham and Sarah had no children. They were 75 years old at this point. And God says, I'm going to give you a child. 25 years later, when Abraham's 100, she's 99, Isaac is born. And they have the promised son. And then Isaac ends up having two kids, Esau and Jacob, But it's not going to be through Esau, it's going to be through Jacob that the line of the king is going to come. And then Jacob has 12 sons. And one of those sons, Judah, is going to be the one that God is going to choose, which will bring about the line of the coming king. Now, Jacob is renamed by God Israel. And they all move to Egypt. And then they're under bondage and captivity for 430 years. A deliverer comes in Moses and brings them eventually to the promised land, which is known as Israel. And during Israel, through the line of Judah, another king is born, and that is David. And God builds a covenant with David. And through this Davidic covenant, here's what God says. He says, I will put one of your descendants on the throne forever. The king is coming. And it's not going to be your son's but it's going to be an eventual son. David even wrote about this king, called him my Lord. And in Psalm 22, he writes a prophetic word about how this king will suffer and die on a Roman cross in a a painful, excruciating way. And then what happens is, through the course of time, we come to the New Testament. And what do we find? We find that there's the new covenant the fulfillment of all of these promises. And in the Gospel of Matthew, the very first book in the New Testament, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, here's what Matthew writes. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The king has come. And the king has come under this new covenant. And he lives this perfect life and he dies And then after his resurrection from the grave, we are now living in what we call the church age until the second advent, which is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so we're in the church age. The king has come. We're looking for his second coming. That's the picture of the Bible. When you look from Genesis all the way to Revelation, it's about the king is coming, the king has come, and he is coming again. So as we look through this new series we're doing called The King is Coming, what we want to look at is 
through the promises of God's word all through the pages of scripture because the advent doesn't start in a manger. The advent of Jesus Christ starts in the Garden of Eden. And so here's what we're going to do in this series. We're going to look at the lives of four women who are responsible for bringing birth to those individuals who will bring about the King of Kings. We're going to spend some time looking at two women from the Old Testament, two women from the New Testament. We're going to look at Eve, and we're going to look at Sarah. Then we're going to look at Elizabeth, and then on Christmas Eve, we're going to look at Mary. And all of these things are portraits of God's fulfilled promise from eternity past that the king is coming. So here's where we're going to begin this morning. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 3. Take your Bibles, open to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 8, and we're only going to read to verse 15. And yet, these are some significant and some of the most significant Words in all of the Old Testament found in the very first chapters of the first book. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Eve. Now, we've been talking a lot about the Garden of Eden because we've been in the book of Romans and we keep going back to the Garden. Why? Because of the fall of humanity, because of the sinfulness of Adam and Eve. And when Adam sinned, we sinned. And that sin nature has passed to every human being. And so every one of us sin and every one of us dies because we're under the curse of that sin in and of ourselves. But in Christ, we're set free from that curse. But we're starting back in the garden. And when we do this, we want to see that right at the point of their failure, God gives hope. God demonstrates mercy and grace right in the middle of their sin. And this is an amazing thing because in that picture, we see what God has planned for humanity even before the fall that has taken place. So here's what happened. Adam and Eve have sinned. They've disobeyed God. They've eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And immediately they notice that they're naked. They cover themselves with leaves and then they go hide from God. Then we get to verse eight. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, it's very clear that Adam and Eve were in a habit of meeting with God daily. Can you imagine that being in paradise? And every single day at a certain time, in the cool of the day, God would walk among you. And he would talk with you. He'd converse with you. And it was perfect fellowship. So it's obvious they were used to that. But what happens is after the sin, the first thing they go do is they hide themselves. They hide from God. They hide away from his presence. Now, here's the thing that many of us think. We think that when we sin, God is the one who turns his back on us. But the reality is, we turn our backs on him. It's God who came looking for them. God knew they had sinned. God knew that they had broken the one commandment that he had given him. And what does he do? He comes in search of them. And yet, they're hiding from him. And they hide with fig leaves. And you know, nothing has changed since that day. Humanity is still hiding from God. And there are people in this room that you've sinned against God and you think God has turned his back on you, yet you're the one who's hiding from him. And you hide in all kinds of ways. There are all kinds of leaves. Some of you are hiding in your careers. Some of you are hiding in relationships. Some of you are hiding in your leisure. Some of you are hiding in your possessions. Some of you are hiding in your money. Some of you are hiding in your sin. 
And we're hiding from God. And in the midst of that, God is the one who's always gracious, who comes. So he comes to them in the midst of their hiding. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Where are you? I love this. Not only does God come after them, he's the one to ask the first question after the fall. Where are you, Adam? Now, did God know where Adam was? Sure. Hiding from God in a garden is like a baby hiding from his parents in a stroller. It can't happen. God knew exactly where Adam was, but here's the problem. Adam didn't know where Adam was. Adam was hiding away from God. Rather than dealing with his sin, he was hiding from it. And God says, do you know where you are, Adam? Where are you? Where are you in your walk with me, Adam? Where are you in your obedience to me, Adam? Where are you in your devotion and your love to me, Adam? Where are you? Isn't it wonderful that God pursues us and he still asks us the same question today? Where are you? So Adam responds. He said, I heard the sound of you walking in a garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, by that statement, he said two things. He admitted the fact that he disobeyed God because he said I was naked And he admitted the fact that he was shamed by it and he was hiding. Adam just outed himself by this. And God says, who told you that you were naked? God never told them that he created them naked. He never said, now Adam and Eve, (laughs) I'm gonna make y'all naked. No, it says they were naked and unashamed. God didn't have to tell them. The fact that they ate from that tree outed them because he knew something he didn't know before. And I love the way he says, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat from? Adam, have you eaten from that tree? Boy, God put him to the test. What is Adam's response? Love it. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree and I ate. Men, men, listen to me. Do not try this at home. It doesn't work with your wife and it doesn't work with God. Let me tell you what sickens me is when a man comes into my office and he blames his wife for his own immorality. When a woman comes into my office and she blames her husband for her own anger. You see, the thing is, we don't like to own our sin. We like to be the victims, don't we? And we live in a culture that's filled with victims. Everybody's a victim. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. And God is saying, you know, it is your fault. And you need to own it. You need to own it. So he blames a woman. So God turns attention to the woman and says, what is this you have done? Adam, where are you? Eve, what have you done? What have you done? Again, how does she answer? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She threw the serpent under the bus. Now, here's the amazing thing about this whole passage. God asked questions to probe their own hearts and to help them to understand where they are. And not once at this point has he condemned them, has he cursed them, has he cast them out. Not once. So what does he do at this point? Now, he's going to do that. But what's the first thing he does? He turns his attention to the serpent. In verse 14, he says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat 
all the days of your life. Now, here's what's interesting. God first looks at the serpent, the snake. The snake was inhabited by Satan. Satan came in and took possession of the snake. The snake had no recourse. The snake didn't invite it. The snake was a created being, a creature that God created. Satan comes in, takes up residency within this serpent, speaks through him, uses him as an instrument of deception. The snake was a snake, and yet God curses the snake. Now, we don't know what the snake was like before the fall, There are many scholars and even zoologists who would say that at one point, the snake probably walked upright because zoologists will say the structure of a snake skeleton even has a place for like where hip bones should be. Could it be that at one point, the snake walked upright? It was a beautiful, it was very clever, crafty, but whatever it was before, it is no longer. So God curses the snake He says, from the rest of your life, you're going to crawl on your belly and you're going to eat the dust of the ground. Now, let me say something about Old Testament. The picture of people eating dust is a picture of absolute defeat. It's a picture of a king on his face in the ground before a victor. And so what God is saying for the rest of this snake's life and existence. It's going to be cursed. It's going to crawl on the ground. It's going to eat dust, which is a symbol of absolute defeat. Why did God curse the snake? Because it's a reminder to all of humanity from that point in the garden to now that the devil is sinister and he is a defeated foe, but he's still sinister. That's why we don't like snakes or cats. No. I do like a snake to eat a a cat to eat a good snake, though. But anyway, so verse 15. Now we come to the hope. We come to the promise. We come to the very first picture of what is known as the proto-evangelium. This is one of the most important scripture verses in the Old Testament. And right there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have what's called the proto-evangelium. The proto-evangelium simply means this. The word proto means first. The evangelium of the euangelion means gospel. Here is the first gospel that we see in scripture. Adam and Eve have sinned. And before God gives out the curses and the consequences of his sin, he first gives them hope and a promise that in the midst of all of this brokenness and this depravity that's going to happen, a king is coming. And he is going to come and he's going to make everything right. And this proto-evangelium is the only gospel that the ancients had. It was the only hope that they held on to. And through the course of the Old Testament, there were righteous men and women who reflect these things, but this is a picture of the coming of Christ. No more beautiful picture can we find of the gospel in the Old Testament than this. And in the Proto-Evangelium, it says this, I, speaking of God, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's not speaking to the serpent. He's speaking to Satan. And at this point, what he is doing is giving us a picture of hope in the midst of our brokenness. 
I want to show you three things that the protoevangelism is telling us about the coming king. Here's the first thing. Satan will not have permanent dominion over man. That's the first thing he says. Satan will not have permanent dominion over man. God in his sovereignty is speaking. And by the way, God is the first prophet. He is declaring this to Adam and to Eve as they're listening to this curse put on Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. What is he saying? He's saying, Satan, you might think you won. You haven't won. Can you imagine what what Satan must have been thinking about? Wow, the only humans that God created, I've deceived. I've turned them against God. I've turned them to myself. Now they are under my power and my control. I am going to be the influence in their life over sin. I'm going to be the influence in their life with corruption. I'm going to be the influence in their life that's going to lead humanity to every kind of depravity that is unimaginable. And the longer I have control over them, the deeper and the darker they are going to walk. They now belong to me. They are mine. And I'm going to destroy humanity with my influence and my demonic dark powers. That's what Satan is thinking. But God said, you will not have it. He says, I will. I'm still in control, Satan. I'm still sovereign. The platform for my sovereignty might be a little bit different, but the power of my sovereignty does not change. And I am still over you, and I'm still over all creation. Yes, they are at enmity with me. Yes, they will be at enmity with me for a long time. But this will not always be the case, Satan, because one day they will turn against you. One day, they will turn their love and their devotion to me. They will hate you, despise you, despise your schemes and your plans and be watching out for you. Their hearts are hardened and darkened, but I will soften their hearts. I will bring about a transformation in their hearts and there will be a day where countless men and women will reject you and will run to me and will serve me and worship me with full devotion. This is a picture of regeneration of what God is going to bring to the human heart because of his great love and his great power for humanity. This is a picture that is not always going to be like this. I want you to think about before you were a Christian. You remember how you were so easily controlled by the darkness? You were controlled by your flesh. You were controlled by the world. You were controlled by the schemes of the enemy who was always whispering, getting you to fall into his schemes, and you were powerless And yet when you met the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit began to convict your heart and the truth of God's word changed your thinking and God drew you to himself and he regenerated you, now your love is for him and your hatred is for Satan. And you look only to please and love him. Right in the garden before any curse was ever given, God said, Satan, you lose because I will redeem humanity for my glory, and they will turn against you and will love me with all their heart. What a beautiful picture of incredible grace. But that's not all. Here's the second thing. Humanity will have a virgin-born Savior who will atone for man's sin. Right in the garden, we are told that the 
redeemer of mankind, the king that is coming, will be virgin born. And you might say, now, now how do you get that out of that? Well, let's look at the passage. He says, and I will put enmity between you and her offspring and, and, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, there's some very important things to see here. First of all, when God is speaking to Satan in here, he's speaking about a very unique person who has come. Remember, this is God speaking. God's prophesying. There's going to be a very unique person who's going to come. He's not talking about a group of people. He's not talking about a multitude. He's talking about one individual who's going to come. And he uses personal pronouns. He says that he shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. He's talking about an individual, somebody who is going to be very, very unique. And not only is he talking about a unique person, but he's talking about the most unique person in all the world, a person whom nobody else will ever be like. How do we know that? Not only does he talk about this, but he talks about the offspring. He says, in between your offspring and her offspring. The word offspring literally means seed. Not seeds, plural, seed, singularly. Abraham talked about this seed coming, an individual. Now, here's the most interesting thing about this whole passage. He speaks about the seed of a woman. This is the only place in all of Scripture where seed is attributed to a woman. No other place in Scripture is seed attributed to a woman. Why? Seed usually comes from the man. The egg comes from the woman. The seed and the egg together, the egg fertilizes the seed. There's conception and there's life. There is no man involved in this. Because the seed and the egg, both of woman. How important is this? So important. It's the seed of man that carries the original sin that is passed down to humanity. Remember, Adam was the one held responsible for the sin, even though Eve was deceived. And that sin is passed down. And because of the union of a man and a woman and the conception of a child, that sinful nature is passed from person to person to generation to generation all the way until the end of time. But there's no man involved in this one because there is a seed that is of the woman and the egg is of the woman. Both of those, which makes him unique unlike anyone else. Isaiah wrote about this. 750 years before Jesus. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. When the angel Gabriel appears to Mary in Luke chapter one and says that you will conceive and give birth to a son and his name shall be Jesus, she says, whoa, 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 whoa. How can this be? I'm a virgin. I've never known a man. And in chapter one of Luke says, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called what? Holy. There's no sin. It's supernatural. The son of God, he is unique virgin born. Then we find that through the pages of scripture that we see over and over and over the confirmation of his virgin birth. He is unique. 
But not only is he virgin born, he will be the atoning sacrifice. In verse 21 of chapter three, after Adam and Eve had sinned and after the curses were given and they were naked and ashamed and the fig leaves were not adequate, what does God do? Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The only way to make garments of skins is to take an innocent animal and kill it. God himself was the one who killed the innocent Adam animals. He is the one that provided the skins. He's the one that clothed them and covered them because of their sin. Beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Right in the garden. And what we see is the atoning work that Jesus will do. And it's God himself who will do it. In Isaiah 53, where Isaiah is speaking about the suffering servant, he says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. It was the Lord's plan that his son would die. And it's at the Lord's predetermined plan that it happened. Peter, when he's preaching in Acts, says this, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Yeah, was he killed by lawless men? Yes, but it was by the plan of God from the garden and from eternity past. Do you see the picture? That Jesus, that God is prophesying, God is promising us that even in the midst of failure, that he's coming. He's coming. And he will be one that is unique, unlike any other. And the only person that matches that is Jesus Christ. Here's the third part of this proto-evangelium. Satan will be destroyed by the works of the Savior. He will be destroyed. I love the way he puts it. He says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The picture is this. Satan sneaks up from behind. The only way you can bruise a person's heel is coming from the back. And Satan sneaks up. And the picture here is Satan attacking Jesus and uh, alluring and controlling individuals at that point at the predetermined plan of God as God allowed him to do that. Then what happened is that's the speaking of Jesus being crucified on the cross. But all he did was strike his heel because God raised him from the dead. But what did Jesus do? It says he'll bruise your head. That word bruise means crush. Crush your head. You know what's really interesting? Jesus was crucified at Golgotha. What does Golgotha mean? Place of the skull. And it was there where Jesus crushed the power of Satan once and for all. And I love the way other writers have said this. John says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Paul writes in Colossians, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphant over them in him. And I love the way he closes out Romans. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He is a defeated foe. Here's the picture. Before God brought the consequences to Adam and Eve, he gave them a promise. Before God brought the curses to Adam and Eve, he gave them hope. Before God kicked them out of the garden in his presence, he gave them anticipation of what he was going to do. And here's the beautiful picture. Even in the midst of our sin and our rebellion, God never leaves us there. He provides the hope and the assurance that we have and only found in 
the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. And this is the theme of Scripture. We see this from Genesis to Revelation. Every single book of the Bible, 66 books in all, all speak about Jesus. Every one of them. Several years ago, when we used to have a choir here, and every Sunday they would sing, but we would often do these musicals. And one year we did this musical called God for Us. It's written by Don Moen. And in that musical was a writing that depicted all of the names of Jesus and who he was from the beginning of scriptures to the end. And I think it's appropriate for me to read these to you. They'll be on the screen, and you can follow along as music's playing behind us. That's the cue for music, by the way. (laughs) I don't see anybody in the booth up there, so... Here's what we find, acapella. (laughs) Let's go. In Genesis, Jesus is the ram at Abraham's altar. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the high priest. In Numbers, he's the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he's the city of our refuge. In Joshua, he's a scarlet thread out Rahab's window. In Judges, he's our judge. In Ruth, he's our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he's our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he's our reigning king. In Ezra, he is our faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of everything that is broken. In Esther, he's the Mordecai sitting faithful at the gate. In Job, he's our redeemer that ever lives. In Psalms, he is my shepherd, I shall not want. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he is my wisdom. In Song of Solomon, he's the beautiful bridegroom. In Isaiah, he's the suffering servant. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, he's the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he's the wonderful four-faced man. In Daniel, he's the fourth man in a fiery furnace. In Hosea, he's my love that is forever faithful. In Joel, he baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he's our burden bearer. In Obadiah, he's our savior. You go on, you see in Jonah, he's the missionary that takes God's word to the world. In Micah, he's the messenger with beautiful feet. In Nahum, he's the avenger. In Habakkuk, he is a watchman that is ever praying for revival. In Zephaniah, he's the Lord, mighty to save. In Haggai, he's the restorer of our lost heritage. In Zechariah, he is our fountain. In Malachi, He is the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. In Matthew, he's the king of the Jews. In Mark, he's our servant. In Luke, he's the son of man. In John, he's the son of God. In Acts, he's the savior of the world. In Romans, he's the justifier. In 1 Corinthians, he's the resurrection. In 2 Corinthians, he is our comforter. In Galatians, he's our liberty. In Ephesians, he's the head of the church. In Philippians, he is our joy. In Colossians, he's our completeness. In First and Second Thessalonians, he's our coming king. In First and Second Timothy, he's our mediator. In Titus, he is the blessed hope. In Philemon, he is our benefactor. In Hebrews, he is our high priest who makes intercession. In James, he's the power behind our faith. 
In first and second Peter, he is our chief shepherd and cornerstone. In first, second, and third John, he is our truth and everlasting life. In Jude, he is the foundation of our faith. And in Revelation, lift up your eyes, church, for your redemption draws near. He is our King of kings and our Lord of lords. He has come and he is our King. Here's what I want you to know today. If you're a child of God and you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, he has come. He is here, Emmanuel, with you, and he is coming again. Celebrate the reality of his presence with you now. Look in anticipation of the joy of one day when he comes to receive his bride. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, my friend, all of history is his story every bit of it. All the other events that happen in humanity are nothing but footnotes for the accomplishment of God's redemptive plan for you. History does not repeat itself. It is linear. It is moving towards a specific goal, and that is eternity. And God wants you to know today that you no longer have to live under the sinister plan of an evil Satan who wants to destroy you but you can receive the redemptive work of Christ for you that you can be free and you can have eternity with Christ Jesus. He is our king. He has come and he is coming again. As we close this morning, we're gonna close with a simple song where we will declare this to be true. So I'm gonna ask you to stand if you would at this point And I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer, both here in the Cross Point Center, and will give us an opportunity to sing about this King of Kings. Father, we thank you for the truth of who Jesus is. We thank you, Father, that from eternity past, there's never been a moment where you have not thought, wrought, and brought your perfect plan of redemption for all of humanity. And Father, as we stand here today, we recognize that the king has come. May we worship him in this moment and may we look with anticipation of his coming again. I pray for those, Father, who don't know Jesus. And I ask, Father, today that they would begin to ask these questions and that your spirit would do a work in their hearts and their minds and begin to change their thinking in such a way, Father, that they would grow with great desire to know more and that you would bring them to a place of salvation for your glory, because Jesus is the King of Kings. Amen. Thank you for listening. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is our hope for you today. If you would like to connect with us, visit our website at scottsill.org slash next steps. Till next time.